What a blessing. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to John, chapter number 19. The notes this morning are pretty simple and straightforward. If you want to follow along on your Bible app on your phone, feel free to do that. Just open it up and you can click events. And if you've got your fancy geolocator on, it should bring you to Grace Covenant Church. You click there and the sermon notes are right there. The only request I have is that you don't like read those and then leave. Just hang out with me for a few moments. Should be some, some helpful things there. Today's Resurrection Sunday, and we worship on Sundays because of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Every Sunday, we celebrate the fact that Christ is the head of the church. It's the reason we don't gather on Saturdays or the Sabbath. We gather on the Resurrection Sunday. That's, that's just why we do it that way, that first day of the week. It's worth noting that time didn't necessarily stand still when Jesus was crucified, but the calendars certainly were impacted, even in a pagan world and society. Um, it, it affected the way we tell time and do time and mark dates of time. There is no real disputing that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life and died on a criminal's cross outside the city of Jerusalem on a hill called Golgotha, was buried in the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and rose to life on the third day. Now you may see some TikToker telling you they've got it proven that that didn't happen, but those are all old arguments that have been significantly and soundly overcome for hundreds and hundreds of years. There is no new argument. There's no new evidence. There's no new revelation that undoes what God has said or done. And we ought to take comfort in that. On Sundays, we say things like this, especially Resurrection Sunday. Now, for those of you who aren't from Grace Covenant or, or this is not your background, it's okay. But on Sundays, we say things like, ready? Watch this. You'll think we planned this. He is risen. What just happened? <laughs> right? That's a normal expression in the life of the church. It's a, it's a greeting that's gone around for some number of times. But that little statement impacts everything. Not just for Christians. Even for those who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That little exchange we just did has significant impact. Because it's true. This morning, I'm going to read John 19 in, in its entirety. We don't do a Good Friday service or a Monday, Thursday gathering or a silent Saturday or any other words that you can find for that Holy Week celebration. So this morning, the Lord would have me just there with the text. Let's read John 19. I'll make a few statements based on a phrase or two that appears that I think may bless you this morning. And then we'll read John 20 to close. John chapter number 19. Now, we're right after the Sanhedrin has had this sham trial and convicted Jesus, and Pilate has to do something with Jesus. Verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns 
and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Mark that in your Bibles, please. John 19, 5. Verse 6. When the chief priests came and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered into his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Mark that. Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Verse 16 continues. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is in Aramaic called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where he was crucified was near the city. It was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather the man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate said, what I have written, I've written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near her, he said to her, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Not I am finished, but it is finished. And he bowed his head. And gave up the spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, 
The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, you, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Final section of chapter 19. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as it is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's just process that for a moment. What we've just read. Process what you've just heard. John's account of the crucifixion, it's recorded, the account is captured by some angle in all of the Gospels, but John is the one we've camped out with this morning. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, God becoming man to bear the sin and shame of the whole world so that we might live and have a right relationship with God. Crucified, on a cross, buried, dead, raised to life on the third day. We get to that part in a moment. In verse five and in verse 14 of what we just read, appear that phrase that start with the word behold. But I had Elliot open our time this morning with a little passage in John chapter number one that you all know very well. John was by the Bethesda side of the Jordan River baptizing. I've been there. It's a, it's a place that's easy to get crowded. So if you think about all of the noise that would have been there in that moment, John is baptizing all who would repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in God and say, you know what? We're turning back to God. We want to follow the Lord, we're looking for the Messiah. John's baptizing people, preparing for the coming Messiah. The day before this passage happened, the Pharisees were out there poking at him, saying, who do you think you are? John said, I'm, I'm a nobody, but I've come to tell everybody about a somebody who could save anybody. Now, that's not actually in the Bible, but that's kind of what he was saying, wasn't it? John was pointing to the Messiah. Take your Bibles, and you can hold your place there in John 19 if you need to. And if you didn't bring a Bible, grab that one out of the pew. Uh, that's for you to use today. In John chapter number 1, verse 29, let's just look at that verse together. For those of you watching online, you see I've got that phrase highlighted. John says, the next day, he sees Jesus coming forth, and he says to him, Behold the Lamb of God. If you're taking notes this morning, you've got three headers. That's it. Number one. Behold the Lamb, our Savior. Behold the Lamb, our Savior. 
John sees Jesus amidst all of the other people. Now, he had seen him the day before, right, with the baptism of Jesus, but John sees him again and, and, and sees him and is recognizing that this is, in fact, the Lamb of God. He calls out to everyone around and says, look, behold. Now, we use that word behold not a lot today, but we see it in churchy things. Can I tell you about the word that's used there really quickly? It's a word that means, hold on a minute, wait, stop everything. Fix your eyes, gaze, look intently, study. Don't forget what you're about to see. I had lunch with Brian Sanders on Thursday. Brian joins us every Sunday. He said this was okay to share. If he doesn't remember that, I'll ask him forgiveness later. Brian said, as he often does, and he asked me so that he can pray specifically for me and for the sermon. And he said, what are you preaching on Sunday? And I said, I'm going to look at the resurrection of Jesus, but I'm using those words, behold him. And as Brian often does, he says, huh, yeah, not very impressed in the moment. And I said, Brian, that word behold, can I tell you what it means? He says, doesn't sound like I can stop you, as Brian would respond. I said, Brian, that word behold, I said, imagine with me for just a moment, Brian is, is blind. I said, Brian, imagine with me for just a moment, you've got two minutes. You know you're going to have two minutes to see again, just two minutes, and then you'll lose your sight again. And so in that two minutes, you line up all of your family and loved ones. And then the lights come on, and you adjust, you fix your eyes, and then you look. How would you look at your family, knowing you glimpse them in that moment, and then not see them again? He said, I'd study them. I said, yeah, you would. Yeah, you would. That's the word. Behold. Put your phones down. Take note of this. Step out of the noise and the traffic. Look at the lamb. It's interesting to note that John's revelation of Jesus Christ in this moment, what does he name? He says, who takes away, he didn't say who comes to make life better. He didn't say who comes to give you an upgrade and to meet all of your needs. He says, behold the Lamb of God who addresses our critical condition as sinners. He's come to fix the only problem that will chase you beyond the grave, sin. And he's come to make you new. The sin of the whole world. Now, this picture of him being a lamb was a very specific word. John could have said anything in an inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God had him say, behold the lamb. You see, in Genesis, there was talk of a lamb being provided. We see that with Abraham and Isaac on the mountain, Genesis 22. In Exodus 12, we see the Passover lamb. Remember the Passover of Exodus? We just celebrated this. Some of you did a resurrection Seder like our family did, bringing to light the gospel bearing on that fantastic Jewish meal. And as we were around our table, we were marveling at the fact that they would take those hyssop branches and, and paint blood, lamb's blood, specific lamb's blood on the doorpost so that the wrath of God might pass them by. It's pointing to this lamb moment. Isaiah 53 said the lamb would come and be pierced, pierced because of us. 
It's this lamb moment that John is alluding back to. In Revelation 5, John would later write, he was the slain lamb. Thank God he's also a personal lamb for me and for you. John is saying, stop everything, everybody, hush, listen, behold, the lamb, our perfect savior. We need a savior because of who we are when nobody's looking. We need a savior because of what we have already done to God. Some of you have been polite and said no thanks. Others of you have been belligerent and said get out of here. But you either accept the Lord Jesus Christ or you're rejecting. He's come to save the whole world. As we move on through John 19, we come to the next utterance. He says, I'm about to blow your mind as John's writing this, but this time he does it through the words of Pilate. Now flip back where we were in John 19, verse 5. I had you mark the one about king, and then I, I kind of blew past this one when I was reading. I got caught up in the reading. In John 19 and verse 5, you'll see it there. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, oh, I had you mark that one, behold the man. Your second note this morning, write it down. Behold the man, our standard. As we look at the man Jesus, we are seeing him be presented by the most suspicious of presenters, Pilate, the pawn used to condemn Jesus to death. Jesus has been delivered up to be crucified. Pilate has already had a conversation with Jesus about who people were claiming that he was and who he is. He's already said to the crowd, I find no guilt in him, but the crowd demands Jesus' execution. So Pilate brings him back out and says, behold, same family of words. Look at this. Stop talking. Look at this. Behold the man. This morning I hear God calling us to look. Be present in this moment and look at this man. You see, he was truly God and he was truly man. And this is something that kind of blows our mind. Even thinkers and theologians, we still are mesmerized by this reality. He's the man. He's unlike any other man. As the lamb, he was our perfect savior. As the man, he is our perfect standard. I want you to think for just a moment about Jesus you say, nobody understands me, Jesus. He had no guilt, no guile, no deceit, no sin. And you're like, well, how could he ever understand me? You may not remember this, but his life was defined by rejection. His family forsook him. You feel alone, isolated, marginalized. Jesus knows that pain. The people that he came to minister to, his own community, rejected him. He came into his own and they received him not. You feel ostracized? Jesus knows that pain. The temple rejected him. The disciples hid in his darkest hour. I mean, his boys were nowhere to be found when it was go time. They're all like, we'll follow you to death from way back. I know some of you men and women who have served in our armed forces 
have the sheer delight of calling some comrades at arms foxhole buddies, right? They're with you in the fight. Jesus' disciples that we call apostles hit. He knows rejection. He knows what it's like to be alone. But he's our standard. Nobody ever spoke like Jesus. No sin, even in all of that, no complaint. No sin. Even in the moment of rage when he goes into the temple, it was controlled and tempered anger to push back that the enemy had crept into the house of God. As our standard of speech, we must recognize even beyond a standard of speech, nobody ever spoke like Jesus. In Matthew chapter number seven, we just finished a study on the Sermon on the Mount. If you haven't spent time studying that, I encourage you to spend some time with that. At the end of that sermon, it said the crowds were astonished because nobody spoke like this. He spoke with authority. Wow. In Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter number eight, later on, he's with the disciples on a boat. A storm comes. He gets up and he rises and rebukes the winds and the sea and the storm stops. And the disciples who had heard him say all manner of things and knew him to be the Messiah said, wow. What sort of man, man, is this, that even the winds and the waves obey him? He was not just any man. Many men have claimed to be God, but only one God took on the form of man. This man said, I am, Jesus said, the bread of life in John 6. We need to feast on him. He said, I'm the light of the world. If you're in a dark place, he is the light. He said, I'm the gate. He's the only way into the family of God. He said, I'm the good shepherd. He'll look after you when everybody else abandons you. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. There is a life after death, and he's the key to living after death. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and it doesn't matter what culture says, and it doesn't matter what other people say. It doesn't even matter what preachers say. Listen to me. I am the only way that you can be right with God. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. We are nourished through Christ alone. He's our standard of speech. He's also our standard of love. I don't want to get all touchy-feely on you this morning, but just to say nobody loved like Jesus' love. Oh, come on. The Bible tells us that greater love, Jesus, has no man than this, than someone lays down his life for his friends. Again, we see stories on that. The YouTube stories light us up, right? We watch that and we're like, that's incredible watching people kind of lay down their life. You hear those news stories and you just move with tears when people step into traffic to save somebody or they put their life in harm's way. Our first responders, our law enforcement, firefighters, EMS, all of those people do that on a regular basis, putting themselves in harm's way for the sake of others. And we have that wow moment. But I want you to understand something. It is amazing when no greater love has any man than that. But Jesus did that for us while we were still sinners. Let me break it down for you. While we were enemies with God. What? Yeah, that's God's words. He loved us. God showed his love for us in this, Romans 5, 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much more so is his life a definition of love than any other life? I'm asking you today to take a good long look at the man 
Jesus, truly man, but he, he loved in a way that cut through the noise and the distraction and the hatefulness and the apathy of the religious bureaucracy. He cut through that with the machete of his love. He cut through all the poisonous vines of greed and selfishness with the machete of his love. He cut a new and a living way. And, and while he's cutting through all of this, he's looking back over his shoulder, wondering, will any man come and follow me? I'll make you new. It's a promise of new life. With no additives, no customization, just Venti Jesus. Take a look at him, taking in. As the lamb, he's our perfect savior. As the man, he's our perfect standard. Finally this morning, in verse 14 of chapter 19, Pilate brings him back out and says those words, Behold your king. Your final note this morning. As the king, he is our sovereign. As the king, he's our sovereign. We come to this last declaration. Pilate, Pilate said this in derision to the Jews. He was poking fun at him. He's being sarcastic here. And it's loaded with irony, especially the response of the religious leaders. Got, you've got to take a moment when you read through this. And I read it very, you know, and God said and the preacher and all that. I tried to read it with dramatic emphasis since it's a reading on Easter morning. But come on, you need to go back and read this and just marvel at the irony, at the irony. When the Jewish leaders said, and I quote, we'll have no king but Caesar. They hated Caesar. They didn't want anything to do with it. They hated the Roman invasion. They hated the Roman occupation. They wanted nothing more than to get that out. But that's how much they hated Jesus more. Complete irony here that the rebellious Jews claimed loyalty to Rome while rejecting their Messiah. Now, this king business can give us pause, especially for those of us who know little of monarchy, which is most of us. I know you've watched a British show on PBS, but still, there's a little more to it than that. Christ, in his role as king, his title reminds us that Jesus willingly laid down his life. He willingly submitted to the Father's perfect will for the redemption of humanity. He is the king of kings, and he is the sovereign over all. He is the absolute ruler. In the Old Testament, one of the major prophets caught a glimpse of this. Isaiah is his name. You know it. In Isaiah, he goes into the temple, and the Lord, I don't understand why, except that he's a major prophet, and this kind of set him on a course, right? But the Lord allowed Isaiah to catch a vision, not of Jesus, per se, but of the train of his robe. So we've watched some monarchical, 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 monarchistic, some king and queen things on television, right? And you see them walking and with the pomp, they're holding the thing and there's this long road, long train behind them of their robe. So the train of, of the robe of the king of kings in the temple filled the whole temple. Isaiah catches some kind of glimpse of this vision. And what was his response? He immediately worshiped the Lord. He fell down and recognized that he was not worthy to be in the presence of a worthy king he was shaken to the core. He listened to the words surrounding the Lord. He listened to the Lord's words, and then he said, I'm yours, Lord. I'm yours. Everything I am, everything I've got, I'm yours. Send me, Lord. Send me. If we're going to respond to Jesus a king, it demands, that's a word we don't like to use today, but it's true, it demands our worship. 
Even the psalmist knew this. They said, ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name. Worship in the Lord, worship the Lord rather in the splendor of his holiness. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. If we're going to honor God as king, we honor him with our worship and we honor him with our obedience because he's in charge. So, you know, two words that don't go together, no and Lord. They don't work together. It's like two magnets of the same charge. They just kind of, they just won't fit together. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writing, here's what he said. Do you, do you not know that your bodies, your very life was purchased with a price? And what was that price? The blood of the lamb. The blood of the man. The life of the king. Wow. Behold. Take a moment. Stop what you're doing this season. Step out of the noise and traffic. Let God interrupt your life for just a few moments and recognize, recognize with me that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, the only Savior. That Jesus Christ is the man, truly man, truly God, our standard. That Jesus Christ is our King, our perfect sovereign who is soon returning. But if the chapter and the story of Jesus ended in chapter 19, there'd be no hope for us. We'd be reading it like we'd be reading any historical account about some famous guy somewhere on the other side of the world about a man who somebody called a lamb and claimed to be king. But for the three of you who know who Paul Harvey is, let me give you the rest of the story. Chapter 20. Grab your Bibles. Let's read together. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon, Peter, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Stooping to look in, to look in <laughs> he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain and one at the head and one at the feet. And they looked at her and said, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they have laid him. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
And Mary Magdalene went and announced to his disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Shalom. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me. Even so, I am sending you. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see his hands in the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those, that's us, who have seen and not, or rather who have not seen and yet have believed. Final two verses. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in these books, but these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I'm going to ask Julia to come. Here's the simple cry this morning. Behold him. Behold him. Study him. Fix your eyes upon him. Take a moment, more than a moment, and reflect on the fact that he's the only Savior. That no man ever lived like Jesus lived, died like Jesus died, and resurrected like he resurrected. And he has always been, was while he was on earth, and will always be King of kings and Lord of lords. A couple responses this morning. Some of you, brothers and sisters in Christ, it'll grip you to spend that much time in Scripture. Some of you who are not yet a part of the church, I don't mean like by membership, but who are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will say, wow, what a story. Powerful. Makes me cry every year. God longs to do more than that in your life. This is not to get an emotional response. He's come to make you brand new. And some still believe and say, that's great for those Christian folks to believe, but it's not for me. When we say he's risen, he's risen indeed. Trust me, every person that's ever lived will one day stand before this lamb, this man, this king. Hopefully, you'll take time today to behold him, ask him to save you, and stand forgiven. Let's pray.
Our Lord Jesus gave thanks on that Monday, Thursday. He gave thanks as he was there with his disciples at what we know as the Last Supper. He did that as he's instituting this sacrament and this ordinance that we observe today. He broke the bread and he gave thanks. And as he was thankful in that moment for the Passover, God's provision for his people, a perfect lamb, so now we will gather to give thanks to him for this, our forever Passover meal. This is replaced the Passover for those of us in Christ. The Lamb of God, the man, the King, the Lord Jesus himself, who shed his blood so that we, through faith, might claim him as our protection and our provision. Brothers and sisters, this is a time to give thanks this morning. This is a meal at which we give thanks. We give thanks to the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the whole world. This morning, I'm going to invite everyone who's a professing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to join us and celebrate together. For those who are living in accordance with his word with a clear conscience to join me in partaking of the supper. Now, if you've got a bulletin coming in, there's a responsive reading uh, in that. So for the three or four of you that grabbed a bulletin, maybe you'll join with me in that moment. We had it uh, on the projector as well. And for those of you online, I'd love for you to do it out loud as well. We don't normally do responsive readings. That's why everybody can grab a bulletin. It's okay. This is a responsive prayer. We want to join in prayer together knowing that we're all sinners saved by grace and that we regularly sin in thought and in word and in deed. We want to confess our sins together. I'll say the first part, and then for those of you that are able to join, join with me. For the rest, just listen in and be blessed. Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we have often gone our own way and rejected your will for our lives together. We are sorry for our sins and turn away from them. For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us, and change us. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for you and to please you in every way for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I ask the men to come now for the distribution of the elements.